Growing up, it seemed like my parents' favorite words to say to me is, you could be doing better. You could have done more. One example comes to mind of when I was a child, I was extremely energetic. I struggled in school. Reading was very difficult for me. I had such a hard time. Uh, so difficult, in fact, my parents uh, took me to multiple counselors and doctors, and I had multiple tests, and the results came back, and they were not very promising. They said that I tested off the charts with ADHD and dyslexia. And what's a boy to do? ADHD, dyslexia, how are you going to study in school? How are you going to focus? They put me in uh, special ed because I had such a hard time. As I was in special ed, in year four, I looked around in the class and I thought, I could do better. I'm capable of more. Um, and so I went to uh, the director of the special ed program and I said, in a couple weeks, I'm going to test and I'm going to get out. And she laughed, and I thought, okay, watch. So I worked, and I worked, and when I was done working and studying, I worked some more. And a few weeks later, the test came, and lo and behold, I passed. I got out. To my excitement and my parents' joy, I was able to transition into the class with my other friends, and by all accounts be, in my mind, what I thought was normal. Well, as the years passed, my parents never forgot the tenacity that I demonstrated in that moment. And when my report cards came in, and they were adequate, I passed. But my parents' response was, you could be doing better. You are capable of so much more. In fact, even my teachers who witnessed this, the teacher who had laughed, saying that I would never get out, years later would say, you're capable of so much more. Why aren't you living up to your potential? Well, in my mind, I thought, well, I had proven myself. I had done great. I had come so far. I can coast. I can be comfortable in the status quo. But those that the Lord had put in my life, uh, my father, my mother, even my sister, they knew I was capable of more, and they would not allow me to be comfortable with the status quo. They said, I can do so much better. Over the past two years, I've had the wonderful, distinct privilege of walking alongside many of the young men in this congregation. It's been a great joy and honor to be able to be encouraged and encourage those here. One of those men, Roy, he preached last week. He and I have become very close over the years. One of the things that comes up in our conversations quite regularly is encouragement of, you're doing great but keep going. Uh, Roy often reminds me that I need to do better, and I pass that on in conversations with young men in the church as one notable young man was sharing his desire for a relationship, and I said, you are doing so excellently. You are growing phenomenal. You're reading God's Word. Uh, it's amazing to see God's work in your life. Keep going. You can do better. It's with that attitude Paul writes to the Thessalonians, to the people of the church in Thessalonica, and he tells them, you can be doing better. You can do so much more. Paul, in the first three chapters, uh, introduces this book. He introduces it with discussing the integrity of his ministry, his own integrity, and the integrity of the church. 
in Thessalonica. And he encourages them, and he says in chapter 1, you guys are doing so well that people within the Greco-Roman world, the Mediterranean world, they hear of your deeds, they know of what you're doing. What's so astonishing about this is that the church of Thessalonica at this point was only believers for a matter of months. This was not a seasoned church like the church in Rome by the time Paul wrote to them. This was a new church, yet, by God's grace, they had been excelling. And how does Paul admonish them in this excellence? He says, you can be doing more. Continue in this excellent path. Take a look with me in verse 1. He says, as for other matters, or therefore, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Paul knew they were living a godly life. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. The New American Standard Version, the NASB, says that you excel even more. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul's priority for the church in Thessalonica was that they would excel still more. Excellence was the priority. And he demonstrates that here. After dealing with introductory matters, he opens up his two chapters of exhortation, which he'll do from here, the beginning of chapter 4, all the way through the end of the book. He opens it up by saying, you're doing great, keep excelling. Paul demonstrates the priority of excellence and that as believers, we should not be comfortable with the status quo. We should continue to be more and more like Christ each day. We should not say, well, I overcame temptation today, so tomorrow I'll relax. No. We should continue to say, today is the day the Lord has given me. Today I will fight. Today I will strive for excellence for the glory of God. Excellence is a progress. It's a process. You don't wake up one day and miraculously you are walking a perfect life for the Lord. It takes time. We know this, a theological term would be progressive sanctification. We know that it's a progress in the Lord. And Paul is saying, continue down that progress. Keep going. This is not an exhortation of condemnation. Paul is not yelling at them, beating them down and saying, you're not doing enough. Paul, like a brother, is saying as an equal, you're doing so well and coming alongside, keep going. Just as Roy would do with me or I would do with others. It's an encouragement. So Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and even though they were living lives reflective of the call God had placed on them, Paul urges them to do even better. In Paul's first exhortation, he urges his readers to live lives free from sexual immorality. But he doesn't stop there. He gives practical ways how to do this and key reasons why they should be motivated to live in this way. So we're going to be asking three questions today. What, how, and why? What? What is it that God is commanding? Take a look at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Pause there. It's amazing how many people are confused at what God's will for their life is. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations where someone will say, I just don't know what God wants me to do in this situation. I don't know how to live my life. I'm sure as you talk to Pastor Ernest or any other minister of the gospel, or even you've noticed in your own lives and talking to friends, this is a common pattern in our world today. There is such confusion of God's will, but Paul cuts through all of that and he says very plainly, it is God's will. What is his will? That you should be sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, in short, to be set apart for holy use. To be sanctified is to be set apart for holy use. In the Old Testament, if you were to give coins to the temple, you would lay it on the altar. Those coins would be sanctified. They would be set apart for holy use. So God's will is that we, as believers, are set apart for holy use, that we are sanctified. This statement uh, of sanctification is the umbrella statement for the rest of the exhortations to follow that Paul gives through the end of the, uh, end of the book of Thessalonians. So before reading each exhortation, it's important to start with, it is God's will that you be sanctified, and then he'll clarify. How can I be sanctified in this topic? So it's God's will that you should be sanctified. He goes on, that you should avoid sexual immorality. This word avoid, in the ESV, it says to abstain from sexual immorality. What does that mean? Are we to look for the line? Are we to get as close as we can? You've got a couple in the car, they're asking, how, how, how far can we go? Well, this word abstain, it means to completely abstain, to avoid completely. May it not even be among you, is the idea. And so the couple who's in the car, like I mentioned, they're trying to figure out, they're in the back seat, how far can we go? Get out of the car. Everything will be okay outside of the car. Paul says, avoid sexual immorality. Scriptures give us ten, um, there's more, but, but there are ten uh, Christian, there are ten activities of sexuality that Christians should be abstaining from. This is a list taken from chapter 4 of Andreas Kostenberg's book on God, marriage, and family. It's a biblical theology of marriage, family, and they have a chapter, chapter 4, specifically on the theology of sex. So in that chapter, he gives a list of 10 activities that Christians need to be abstaining from, uh, biblically speaking. So, uh, sexual immorality to abstain from, number one, fornication. This covers all forms of sexual activity or intercourse outside of marriage, including sex with a prostitute and adultery. Some passages to consider with that is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, here in 1 Thessalonians 4, and then Matthew 5, 32. Secondly, adultery. Adultery as sexual intercourse with someone other than one's spouse was forbidden by one of the Old Testament commandments. You can find that in Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, and in Exodus 20. In Old Testament times, it was a sin punishable by death. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus continues on this theme and clarifies even more that to lust after someone in your heart is adultery. Number three, homosexuality. Same-sex se- same sex sexual activity whether man to woman, or man to man, sorry, woman to uh, woman, uh, is, prescribed, uh, is 
prohibited throughout Scripture as contrary to the created order God has given for man. You can see this in Leviticus 18.22 and in Romans 1.27. For impurity, this refers to moral filth or dirtiness and living in a, a degenerate manner. Those who indulge in this kind of lifestyle are tainted and defiled. Impurity is one's heart and thoughts. Impurity in one's heart and thoughts leads to sexual immorality, which is evidence of moral depravity and God's judgment. Orgies. It is inappropriate and sinful for married couples to participate in orgies with one or several other couples, as this violates principles 1, 2, and 4 above. The New Testament makes clear that orgies are part and parcel of godlessness. Worldly lifestyle uh, often, it's a godless worldly lifestyle often involving excessive drinking uh, as well. This uh, This prohibition would include any type of public sex or voyeurism. Prostitution, to engage in sexual activity with a prostitute uh, normally for payment violates clear scriptural standards and is consistently condemned in scripture. Leviticus 19.29, Deuteronomy 23, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Number seven, lust. This does not refer to the strong sexual desire a husband has for his wife and vice versa which that, within the context of marriage, is a God-given and good thing. But to an indiscriminate, um, unrestrained sexual desire for uh, men or women who are not one's partner in marriage. This involves sensuality or gratifying one's senses in an intimate manner. Of course, the use of any type of pornography or pornographic material by individuals, whether married or not, would be prohibited. You can see this in Galatians 5, 1 Thessalonians here, Matthew 5, and many more. Number eight, sodomy. In the Old Testament, sodomy refers to man's sexual relations with other men. Uh, In contemporary English, the word refers to unnatural sexual intercourse, whether with a man, with another man, or a person with an animal. Obscenity or inappropriate sexual language. In Ephesians 5, 3-4, Paul writes, But sexual immorality and all impurity or a covetousness must not be even named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. You can also see Ephesians 4.29 where he says, no corrupting, i.e. rotten or decaying talk. And lastly, incest. Any form of sexual activity with one's family member or relative is prohibited in Scripture. Leviticus 18 uh, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Beyond this, The following general principles will serve as helpful guidelines as a husband and wife consider what is or is not acceptable by God regarding sexual activity. 
So three principles in regarding sexual activity, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate, biblically speaking. Here are three things you can ask yourself. Number one, is a given sexual practice or activity prohibited in Scripture, or does it violate scriptural moral principles? If it doesn't, this may be a matter in which Christians have freedom of discernment or discretion. Two, uh, is a given sexual practice or activity beneficial or harmful? If it's harmful, it should be avoided. The qualifiers beneficial or harmful ought to be evaluated with regard to physical, emotional, and the spiritual realm. And lastly, does a given sexual practice or activity involve persons outside of the marriage relationship? If so, or if a practice becomes public, it's wrong. Because scripture commands those who are married to keep the marriage bed undefiled. Hebrews 13.4 Again, Paul says, It's God's will that you be sanctified. Avoid, flee from completely all sexual immorality. That's the command. So how do we do this? Well, Paul gives us three ways that we can avoid sexual immorality. Way one, controlling your own body. Take a look at verse four. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. This passage has a a fair amount of disagreement within it. This term, your own body, can be translated your wife. Uh, In 20 or more commentaries, that's how they'll translate this. And that's what they'll teach, that Paul is saying uh, to control your own wife. Um, Some commentators will go and they'll clarify that and say, well, this is regarding uh, dating advice. He's going to say, well, if you can't control yourself, get married, and then here's how you pursue a spouse. Um, I don't think that that is um, a coherent line of thinking. Personally, I don't think it's as... as, um, as effective to see it that way as a more literal translation, which would be your own body. That word that's used here can be used for wife and is in other places, uh, but Paul never uses that word to refer to wife, uh, the word in Greek. Uh, He only uses it one other time to refer to the body. So I think uh, body is a better translation. Also, if you consider it your wife, it makes nonsense of Uh, verse 5, where it talks about uh, the passion. Of course, it's right to have passion for your wife. And so I don't think uh, wife is a good translation here. So Paul is saying, how do we avoid sexual immorality? Control your own body. One way that I like to think about this, maybe it'll help. Uh, If you're at a movie theater and you're watching a great movie. Uh, If you're like me, uh, halfway through, you realize you have to go to the bathroom. And you're annoyed because you don't want to leave. Is there someone in the hallway that is capable of going to the restroom on your behalf? No. Uh, Only you are able to go to the restroom for you. No one else can do that for you. Likewise, with controlling your own body, no one else can control your body for you. You have to make mastery of it. 
This is not an easy task. It takes work, especially if you want to live a life that's pleasing to God. When I was in uni, I went to a Bible college uh, in America. I was having a conversation with one of my good friends. Uh, He was a fellow student at the university. He was dating a young lady uh, who lived in Chicago. Both of them had relatively rough pasts. He grew up in California uh, in the south side when it was Killer Cali. Uh, You may have seen it on the news, the riots and so on. He grew up during that era, uh, the gang wars and such. And she grew up in Chicago in biker gangs. Uh, For a woman to do biker gangs in America, she's got to be pretty tough. And she would have seen some pretty tough things. Well, both of them became Christian. And uh, they started dating. Well, uh, some of the old ways had continued to, uh, the old patterns continued in their life. And he shared with me that they were continuing to have sexual intercourse whenever they pleased. He said, uh, if I'm hungry, I'll eat. And when we get together, if we want to have sex, we're going to have sex. And if we don't want to have sex, we won't have sex. We'll just relax. I asked him, bro, don't you feel conviction for this? He said, no, no problem. And he reiterated, if I'm hungry, I'm going to eat some food. This astonished me because uh, Paul is dealing with the exact same issue at the church in in, uh, Corinth when he writes this. 1 Corinthians 6, 13, it says, You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. This was a Corinthian saying that says, essentially, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. If I'm horny, I'm going to have sex. If If I want it, I'll do it. That's what the body's for. That was the argument. But Paul replies to that, and he says this, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul writes later, how he beats his own body into submission to Christ. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says this, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have, uh, I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Like Paul, we beat our bodies into submission so that we will not be disqualified for Christian service. Our bodies are not our own. They were bought with a price. Paul says later in Romans chapter 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We are to offer our bodies to the Lord as living sacrifices. So how do we abstain from sexual immorality? Control your own body. Paul continues, number two, how do we abstain from sexual immorality? Living contrary to the pagans. Look at verse five. Not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. On Friday, I had an awesome opportunity to hang out with some of my wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ at another church that I serve with. At dessert after dinner, uh, one of the ladies, she asked a difficult question. She said, Josh, I look around and I see uh, the culture here in Australia is so licentious. It's so driven by sexual immorality. 
uh, how can I raise a child in this? She said that she's considering uh, possibly settling down back in Malaysia because the, the circumstances here are just so crude. She doesn't know how to raise a child in, that, in those circumstances. She has a point. I don't need to go into too much detail about our cultural circumstances with sex. The pornification of society is evident. You go to the mall, you see billboards, you watch TV, you watch sitcoms, movies, uh, even in conversation with people at work. Sex sells. It's everywhere. In ads. But as terrible as it is in our culture today, it's not as bad as it was in the, in, uh, the Greco-Roman world. Our world is bad, but, but Paul was ministering in a pretty difficult time. The principles of Scripture had not yet taken root within the Greco-Roman time Paul ministered in. It was a society governed by pagan ideologies. The Greeks practiced sexual immorality commonly, and even incorporated it into their religious practices. Pagan religion did not demand sexual purity of its devotees, the gods and goddesses being grossly immoral themselves. Priestesses were in the temple for the service of the men who came. It was believed that uh, to have sex with a temple priestess uh, would allow you to commune directly with the gods. One ancient Greek philosopher wrote this, We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the, day, uh, for the day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. So long as a, so long as a man supports his family, his wife. There was no shame whatsoever in extramarital relationships. The church in Thessalonica were only believers for a matter of months, and they lived in this society. In Thessalonica, uh, they had a multitude of religious cults that were um, engrossed in sexual practices. Many of these believers Uh, were engaged in these things prior to their Christendom. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and such were some of you, right? He says, uh, no uh, immoral, ungodly, sexual, immoral uh, will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Paul is working and ministering to people who were engaged in sexual immorality prior to Christ. And he's saying here now, do not live like the pagans, Be sanctified. So, we avoid sexual immorality. We control our bodies. We live a life contrary to culture. My answer uh, to the question that my friend gave uh, was teach Scripture to your child. We must be saturated with the Word of God, allowing it to transform our hearts and our minds. If Paul could minister in a world where people were having sex with prostitutes and uh, slaves and friends, and it was just a free-for-all, essentially. And he could encourage people in holiness. We, too, can live a life of purity in our culture today. This is not a new problem, but this is an important one, that we distinguish ourselves as the body of Christ 
because we are set apart for holy use. And lastly, Paul says how we can avoid sexual immorality. He says, by not taking advantage of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 6, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of, of a brother or sister. Many of you ladies, or even gentlemen, you've probably been in relationships where uh, your partner uh, will say, uh, or push you to sexual intimacy in a way that you're not comfortable with, whether they want to do touching or, or other things. Uh, you're not comfortable, you say no. And their response to you is, but baby, I love you. They argue that because they love you, they want to demonstrate that love by sexual intimacy or a form of sexual intimacy. Well, let me tell you, that person does not truly love you and never did. If they did love you, true love, godly love, wants your highest good, your best. And God's best is a life of holiness, abstaining from sexual immorality. So Paul says, Church, you had lived a life of the pagan. You are now Christian. Do not live like you used to live. It is not okay for you to take advantage of your fellow brothers and sisters in lust. So abstain from sexual immorality. Control your own body. Live contrary to culture. And do not take advantage of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why is this important, Paul? Well, he gives us the answer. There's three reasons why this is important. Reason one, God is the judge. Excuse me. <laughs> Reason one, God is the judge. Verse six, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. We are told throughout Scripture that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. As Christians, we cannot live a life uh, in uninterrupted sexual sin. Romans chapter 1 tells us this, that uh, we suppress the truth of God for a lie. Uh, the idea here of suppressing, it's uh, we press it down and we keep pushing and pushing and pushing and there's pressure back up. Think of like a spring on a car. It's incredible pressure to, to push a spring down. And that's what we do with the truth of God. We say we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And what does God do? He gives us over to a depraved mind. He allows us exactly what we want, to pursue our sexual idolatries on our own terms, uh, completely devoid of him. This is God's judgment to the unbeliever. But we're told as Christians, we cannot live a life uninterrupted in sin. We cannot live in uninterrupted sexual sin as believers. But we are not incapable of committing such sins. We see that in Corinthians chapter 5, where one of uh, the dear brothers was, had fallen into sexual sin, and Paul urges uh, the church to discipline him. And we find out later in 2 Corinthians that he was restored to the brothers. Here, Paul possibly had the Lord's future judgment of believers in view rather than his present discipline. God does not always punish the sexually immoral in this life, 
but he will avenge those who have been violated eventually. Many of you have been violated. Uh, many of you have been hurt and wounded in, in this realm of sexuality. I want to encourage you that God sees that. He sees your hurt. He sees that, and he will punish those who have wronged you. Allow him to be your comfort. Reason two Paul gives, why should we avoid sexual immorality? We are called to purity. Verse seven, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a life holy, to live a holy life. I think this is pretty self-explanatory. We should abstain from sexual immorality because we have been called to purity. Our calling is a reason to abstain. And finally, God himself. Why should we abstain from sexual immorality? God himself. Verse 8, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul is not speaking as a single man trying to take away the fun of the people in Thessalonica. He's not saying, well, I'm not getting any, so you can't get any. This isn't Paul's words. This is God's words. God himself is commanding uh, us as believers abstain from sexual immorality and to refuse to follow in this footstep, to follow in this command, is not to refuse to follow Paul. It's to refuse to follow God himself, the same God who gives you his Holy Spirit. According to Scripture, only married couples have the right to enjoy the gift of sexual intimacy. As Christian married couples engage in sex underneath Christ's lordship, they will enjoy wholeness instead of brokenness, grace as opposed to guilt, and authentic and lasting fulfillment as opposed to a brief and fleeting gratification that comes from, tr- from trying to experience the Creator's good gift apart from acknowledging Him and His created order. At the heart, sex in the service of God can only be enjoyed within the pr- uh, protected sphere of monogamous marriage. So all those who wish to engage in pure sex thus needs their hearts cleansed by first coming to Christ as sinners with repentant hearts in order to enjoy God's created ideal for the first human couple. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray. Lord God, we've discussed a very sensitive topic today, a very difficult topic, one that's close to many of our hearts. Lord, I I ask that if there's any of us who are engaged in sexual immorality, whether uh, on their own or with someone else, that they will come to repentance, that they will turn that over to you, that you will change them. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not believe you, does not have a relationship with you, I ask that you will bring them to repentance and faith. Lord, as we go from this place, help us to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that you've put on us, knowing that it's you who've drawn us to yourself. It's you who've commanded us for purity. We love you, Lord, and thank you for all that you've done for us. We ask that you be glorified in all we say and do. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.